President James Monroe, who was also a former Secretary of State, declared that the United States would unilaterally and as a matter of fact act as the protector of the region. The doctrine that bears his name asserted our authority to step in and oppose the influence of European powers in Latin America. And throughout our nation's history, successive presidents have reinforced that doctrine and made a similar choice. Today, however, we have made a different choice. The era of the Monroe Doctrine is over. The relationship, that's worth applauding. That's not a bad thing. You're hearing a clip from Secretary of State John Kerry speaking just a couple years ago on foreign policy and invoking one of the enduring but twisted legacies of James Monroe. This is the fifth episode of Presidential. Shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. What your country can do for you. A date which will live in infamy. I think Monroe doesn't get the credit he deserves. You want to go on a blind date with James Monroe? I don't know, do I? (laughs) Well, he was very handsome. So maybe you would. That was Julie Miller from the Library of Congress. All right, I'm going to be honest that for a while I've been worried the Monroe episode would be a bit of a bore. He was president during the era of good feelings, which basically sounds like the least exciting era ever. (laughs) But it turns out that there's actually a lot to get excited about. And not just because Julie Miller thinks Monroe is handsome. My favorite image of Monroe actually came from Greg Schneider, who's here with me. He's the editor who oversees all the business coverage here at The Post, and he went to interview the Monroe experts at the Monroe Museum. Okay, so you came back all excited, and you said James Monroe is like Forrest Gump. Well... (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) Not the most intellectual comparison, but, you know, it's true. And and actually, it was Scott Harris, the director of the Monroe Museum in Fredericksburg, that um, first made that comparison. Uh, But I think it's a good one because Monroe was this guy who just seemed to have an uncanny knack, almost, uh, to be around... Uh, important and significant events. Um, so here's a guy, He was, uh, as a teenager, he dropped out of college and went off and uh, joined the army to fight in the revolution, wound up alongside General Washington in New York. Uh, you know, the famous picture of Washington crossing the Delaware, mm-hmm. that's Monroe holding the flag in the boat. Now that didn't really happen, I found out. He actually crossed the river before Washington did because he was on like a covert operation to spy on the British and the Hessian troops that were there. But anyway, so he's there. He gets wounded, uh, almost killed. He took a musket ball to the shoulder. It severed an artery, and he almost died. So there are also paintings of the scene of Washington accepting the surrender at uh, Trenton, and you see Monroe in the background being treated <laughs> for his wound. So, you know, again, he's there in the picture. Mm-hmm. Um Then he he goes on to join the Continental Congress. He was governor of Virginia. He went over to France and was there just after the French Revolution, just after Robespierre was executed. 
then he went back and actually saw the coronation uh, of Napoleon Bonaparte. He negotiated the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, he came back and served as Secretary of State and Secretary of War at the same time, mm-hmm. which is, you know, who who else <laughs> has done that? And, and, and then wound up, you know, president himself. So um, it's just for a guy that a lot of people don't know much about, it's an incredible run of um, important events that he was uh, a part of. So I, I thought that was really impressive. And maybe more impressive, I did ask your question. So when I, I was at the Monroe Museum, I talked to Daniel Preston, who's the editor of Monroe's Papers, and I asked him the question that you've been asking people you know, throughout the podcast, and that's, if you went on a blind date with James <laughs> Monroe, if, what advice would you give someone? What would they expect? So here's Greg talking to Daniel Preston. When, when, when Monroe was in the Continental Congress, he was right out of the Army. He was in his 20s. And the Continental Congress in the 1780s was either elder statesmen or these young men just out of the Army. So there's Monroe, and there's a whole raft of others. And they're all young, and they're all single. It's not correct to say he had a string of girlfriends, but there were mm-hmm. women that uh, he was interested in that... There was at least some level of romance. So he's not this nerdy guy who sits in his office all day writing letters on government policy and, and, and these sorts of things. There is one letter about Monroe at this time by a young woman who kind of makes fun of him, that you know, he's sort of dull and awkward. And you know, some, some of the girls think he's handsome, but I don't think so. So there's that side of him. But on the other hand, uh, when he was in New York, he married Elizabeth Courtright, who, by all accounts, was one of the great beauties of her age. He was mid-20s. She was 17. He danced. He enjoyed music. They didn't go out to the theater a lot. He liked art. He liked horseback riding. He, he did lots of things that, that, that he was interested in. So he probably would have been fairly, fairly... Uh, good company, I, I I would think. He certainly had a taste for fine wine, for fine dining. Mm-hmm. So um, I suspect if somebody had gone on a date with him, they would have had a really nice date. <laughs> was uh, he physically imposing? He, he, yeah, he was six one. I mean, there's his clothes sitting right there, <laughs> standing right there on that mannequin, and that's Mrs. Monroe's dress. So he was six one. She was four eleven. But yeah, tall, robust. One commentary was when he was in Ohio, he was heading for Zanesville, Ohio, and the local militia and the dignitaries went out to meet him coming in, and he was on horseback, and one of them commented that they couldn't keep up with him. Hmm. So was he, to use a modern term, sort of a bad dude, or was he more of a functionary as he got older and worked his way through government? Um, would not call him a bad dude. He was... Um, very serious about about government service like all men of the time he was a farmer even though he was an attorney he owned several farms in virginia and if he thought of himself as jefferson did as washington as the others as first and foremost a farmer but he felt a dedication to public service i think he liked the, the the sense of of accomplishment that that there were I don't want to say he's pragmatic, although in a lot of ways he's more pragmatic than anything else. But that seems to indicate that he's not interested in 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 philosophy or principles, which is not true. He really was driven 
much and very vocally uh, an advocate of the ideals of the American Revolution. He talked about this all the time. But he really liked, seemed to have liked the notion of being able to accomplish something, that there were problems facing the nation and being able to help resolve those problems. So that musket ball from the Battle of Trenton, it remains lodged in his shoulder for the rest of his life. So Monroe literally and figuratively carries the American Revolution in him. Monroe is considered the last president of the Revolutionary War generation. He's also the last in a string of Virginians and Democratic Republicans to hold the office of president. Here's Greg talking to the director of the Monroe Museum, Scott Harris. Uh, was uh, Monroe the last uh, president to wear the powdered wig and the, I don't know, the knee breeches and that? Well, he never wore the wig. He did tie he his hair back in a queue uh, on occasion when it was, he was younger and when it was longer, although he tended to be more short-haired by the time he got to the White House. But a number of people did comment on the fact that he did still tend to wear knee breeches and he wore buckled shoes. His, his preferred mode of dress was very conservative and almost Revolutionary War-like. There are accounts where he liked to often wear buff pants and a, a blue coat, and, and in a waistcoat or a vest that were suggestive of a military uniform. In fact, he liked to be called, even as president, Colonel Monroe. He tended to very much identify with that point in his life when he had been in the Army. And it gets into the nature of his belief in the, the American Revolution, the, the, the ideals of representative government and what he and his generation were fighting for animated his entire political career. Monroe's presidency, in many ways, marks the end of the old guard. And it's possibly Monroe's pragmatism mixed with his sense of responsibility to first and foremost protect and strengthen the Union that leads him to make some really interesting appointments as president. I talked on the phone to Jay Sexton at the University of Oxford about this. Yeah, he had an all-star cabinet. The Monroe cabinet was... Uh, one of the best cabinets in American history. Uh, it had, uh, obviously, John Quincy Adams as Secretary of State. It had uh, William Wirt was the Attorney General. And so some of the leading lights of, of the time were in that, in that cabinet. It's a transitional moment. So it's um, the, the fading away of the, the first generation of, uh, of American statesmen, you know, the the Washingtons and Hamiltons, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and then Monroe's the last one of those uh, presidents. Um, and then that new generation, the, the generation that's going to come of age in the Jacksonian era, people like John Quincy Adams, who will, of course, be president later in the 1820s, and Calhoun will become such an important figure in the politics of the South. Sectional identities are becoming increasingly important. In American politics, that has to be figured into the construction of a cabinet if you're a president, so you're thinking about representative figures. Um, you know, it, it's quite interesting because Abraham Lincoln, ever since the Doris Kearns Goodwin book, everyone talks about the team arrivals and the, the Lincoln cabinet, but the, the Monroe cabinet is right there in terms of uh, the importance of the figures there and the importance of 
managing the different perspectives within the cabinet. I think that's something that's underappreciated about Monroe's presidency. And so you're saying that he was particularly good at being able to manage all of those different perspectives? Absolutely. It's kind of difficult to read in between the lines to get a sense of exactly what Monroe is doing, but but you can get the sense of a very deft leader. Um, you know, the the one the president he might be compared to most often is the is uh, Eisenhower and the idea of a kind of hidden hand presidency. So he's not a a a, a bold leader that's directing everything, but he's He's playing a more gentle role behind the scenes. So remember how the War of 1812 happens during Madison's administration? Well, okay, since the White House burned down then, Monroe basically has to rebuild and refurnish it when he becomes president in 1817. He's very into French things because of all that time he spent in France, So he spends a lot of money buying French furniture. Even as Monroe was leaving office, there was some grumbling about a a lack of Republican sensibilities in the way in which he had furnished it. It was considered a little too high style, high toned. Congress did appropriate money for the president to refurnish the White House, and they ended up spending it all on one room. Partly because things were a lot more expensive uh, than they thought, and partly because I think they were being taken a little bit by agents in Europe. Um, But it it bequeathed a a legacy of White House style that that we we continue to try to recapture. We think of White House style, what that means. We think in very many ways uh, of what Monroe did for the refurnishing. And whether it's Teddy Roosevelt or Jackie Kennedy later, they tried to recapture that in subsequent Uh, restoration work at the White House. Now, because the White House isn't in much shape to live in at first, and because Monroe is still thinking about the War of 1812, he decides to spend some early months of his presidency going on a tour of the country. What he really wants to do is inspect its waterways and infrastructure so he can particularly find out how to improve America's national defense. But something interesting happens as he's traveling around. So he set out from early June, and he got to Baltimore, left Washington, got to Baltimore, and the whole city had turned out because the president was coming to town. The president never toured. No one saw, ever saw. If you went, if you lived where the president lived and a neighbor, you could see him. If you had business in Washington, you could see the president. But other than that, you know, we are so saturated. If we see a picture of any recent president, we know who they are. We hear their voice. You know, we can identify them. Um, not, not the case. No, no, the president didn't travel. The president never. Jefferson gave two speeches during his presidency. His two inaugurals. Madison did three. He did two inaugurals and then one back home in Orange County. So no one saw the president. No one heard him speak messages to Congress were published in the newspapers. People could read them. But, you know, that was pretty much it. So the notion that the president is coming to town, the president is coming to our town, was this big, big thing. And Monroe got to Baltimore, and he wrote to a friend, he said, this isn't what I had in mind, but I can either go along with it or I can go back home and just forget about it. And so he went on, and it was everywhere he went. People came out 
by the thousands. Uh, so he did this tour in 1817 where he went up along the coast, you know, Philadelphia, New York, Boston, up to Portland, Maine, across uh, New Hampshire and Vermont, across upstate New York, over to Detroit, out to Detroit in 1817, which was real frontier, down through, horseback through the woods of Ohio, back through Pennsylvania, got back in September. So it was gone basically three months, travel like 2,400 miles by boat, by carriage, by horse. And he gave speeches everywhere he went. You know, and a lot of them were just little simple things. He would show up in a town and the mayor would come out and say, gee whiz, we're glad the president is here. Welcome, we're a swell place. And he would respond and say, you know, I'm glad to be here. This is a swell place. And, you know, but a lot of times they were more serious, you know, sort of speeches talking about what he thought about the United States and what he saw for the United States. And there was commentary in the newspaper. Every newspaper in the country, every day, there was accounts of where the president was. There was commentary. Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? What does this say about our country? People wrote in their diaries about it. They wrote letters about it. It brought the presidency to the people in a way it had never been. And I, I can't really prove this, but I get the sense that uh, Andrew Jackson's supporters and his political managers looked at this and thought, now here's the way to get your guy elected. You get him out in the public and you get him seen. So basically, he was creating a pattern for political campaigning. And that wasn't his intention, but I'm sure the Jacksonians looked at it and said, you know, this is the way to do it. You know, sort of look how popular Monroe is. Everybody loves him. Monroe is a well-liked and unifying figure, but there are some fissures that are deepening. In around 1812, the country experiences its first financial panic. The first major depression after the, the revolution came during Monroe's presidency, the Panic of 1819. There was some debtor relief for people who owed money to the government for buying land. There was debate, should they revise tariff laws? Uh, or some regulation of banking. But if you needed money, there were some banks, but mostly you borrowed money from people you knew. And everybody did it. This was standard in the United States. Everybody was in debt. Everybody lived on credit because there was no money. Hmm. Uh, There just just wasn't. There wasn't any money in the U.S. until the California gold strikes, you know, and and the silver strikes in, 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 in Colorado at the same time. And at that point, there there was money in the United States and there became more of a cash economy at that point. But up to then, people lived on credit. It was, it, was, it was a credit economy. Around the same time, the question of slavery is becoming an increasingly divisive issue. It's a moral issue, but it's also an economic issue because it's powering much of the Southern economy. So this is what underpins the Missouri Compromise in 1820. When Monroe was president, um, the United States was acquiring territory, you know, as it had been doing already. But what was happening was there began to be increasing, um, increasing sense of anxiety between the North and the South over whether um, when territory was admitted as states, whether these new states would have slaves or would not. In other words, whether they would be slave or free. And... Um, we remember the Missouri Compromise of 1820, and there was a series of compromises of which this was the first, 
and it had to do with Missouri wanting to enter as a slave state. And the compromise involved allowing um, Maine to enter as a free state and territory that was admitted above the southern border of Missouri to also enter free. So that was the compromise. But what's really important is not so much the details of the compromise, but rather that it was the first in a series of compromises that attempted to create peace between the North and South over this issue of slavery. And ultimately, with the Civil War in 1861, that peace collapsed. In other words, the efforts to make compromises collapsed. Abolitionists, like famously William Lloyd Garrison, who was a very important abolitionist in the 19th century, would say all these compromises, this effort to make compromises with slave powers, it's intolerable. We shouldn't be making any compromises with slavery at all. Slavery is a moral wrong. We should stop at this minute. And the Constitution itself, he would argue, is is an immoral document because, you know, made compromises with slavery. You know, after Monroe's no longer president, there's like a kind of a shift in, a gradual, 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 gradual shift in thinking. And we see the beginnings of this in Monroe's um, presidency. And I have a very interesting document to show you. So this is just some little wrecked up notes in the Monroe papers. We have James Monroe papers here. You see it's probably was in a fire or something. You know, oh, people yeah. had candles and... So these are just some notes in these very, very scratchy, bird-track-like-looking handwriting. Hang on, let me get to the right page. And here he's making a little note about the Missouri Compromise, and he writes, if the whole arrangement to this effect would be secured, that it would be better to adopt it than break the Union. And that, that was the feeling. In other words, it would be the, the Missouri Compromise, which was really not a great thing, you know, because it allowed slavery to continue, that it was better to have it than to threaten the Union. In other words, the Union of the States that had been formed by the Revolution. And then ultimately, years later, the, the Union was broken with the Civil War. To help round out our sense of the role that Monroe played in the Missouri Compromise, Greg asked Daniel Preston a bit more about it. Compromise in general is something that... Um, you know, Americans have a ambivalent relationship within their leaders. You want them to be able to get things done and be able to be reasonable and compromise, but you also want leaders who can chart a course forward. So how how did Monroe grapple with, first of all, that big issue of slavery that others had kind of dodged before him? Uh, but then how did he work compromise into his way of handling these demands? For the Missouri compromise, this was something that was largely worked out in Congress. But as president, it was something certainly that he was involved in. And what guided his thinking through it? First of all, was the cohesion of the Union. And and and, and there had been talks from the 1780s onwards. He was dealing with this when he was in the Continental Congress in the mid-1780s. There was always talk of one section or the other separating from the Union and forming a separate confederation. And instead of having one Union, there's these little conglomerates of confederations around the nation. And he thought this was very bad because he thought Hmm. they would collapse and there would be no more country based upon the ideals of of the American Revolution. So he, he, he very much saw a need to resolve this issue of, 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 of Missouri and saw compromise as a way to do it that there were these various factions in the country and they 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 needed to reach some sort of compromise as they had done in the past in order 
to resolve the problem. But did, did he think that would be a long-term solution, though? Wasn't it basically kicking the can down the road? They've been kicking the can down the road for, you know, for 50 years. And he's, we look back on, on it, and you know, for us, it looks like a pretty straight, smooth road. The country's found that we win the revolution, we become independent, we go on and become a nation. But you know, it's day to day. We don't know what's going to happen next week, and we don't know what solutions you know, are offered are going to be long term and which ones are, are going to fizzle out. Um, he hoped it would work. I think what would have been important to him was maybe not the exact details of this particular compromise, but the fact that the crisis had arisen and loyalty, adherence to the Union had prevailed. Uh, the, the, the Missouri Compromise wasn't going to address the slavery issue. It, 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 it simply wasn't. For Monroe, the slavery issue was going to require, and he's, he's very specific about this later in life, uh, was going to require some sort of large nationwide effort. You know, he's, Monroe was a slave owner himself, and he's caught up in this whole bind of he doesn't think slavery is, a, is, 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 is moral. He doesn't think it's good for the nation. He sees all sorts of problems with it, but he's a slave owner. And he buys and he sells slaves. He mortgages them. He, he derives income from their labor. He was very, very much involved in the system, but he didn't see individual emancipation as really a route to solving the bigger problem. So the question was, what happens? And for Monroe, the solution was colonization. There are only two countries on Earth that have capitals named after U.S. presidents. One, of course, is America, which has Washington, D.C., and the other is Liberia, whose capital is Monrovia, named after Monroe. This is because Monroe supported the idea, along with this group called the American Colonization Society, that one solution for phasing out slavery would be to create a settlement in Africa for freed slaves. This is what becomes Liberia. Now, for the final part of the episode, we'll turn to the other fixture that bears Monroe's name, and that's the Monroe Doctrine. For this, I spoke to Jay Sexton at the University of Oxford. He wrote a book all about the Monroe Doctrine, which is this foreign policy statement that Monroe announces right toward the end of his final term in office. Monroe basically just makes the statement that the United States will not tolerate European aggression in the Americas. And that's essentially the whole of it, but the doctrine takes on some fascinating twists and turns throughout history and gets appropriated in all different ways by future presidents. All right, so here on the phone is Jay Sexton debunking some of the Monroe Doctrine myths. So the Monroe Doctrine is a message to Congress that the president delivers. Uh, he doesn't deliver it in the way that the State of the Union address is delivered today. It was something that would have been read aloud by a clerk. And in that document, the president 
outlined the United States's opposition to European intervention in the Western Hemisphere. So that, that's what the Monroe Doctrine is. It's not called the Monroe Doctrine at the time. The president and his cabinet, they don't craft it as a doctrine. Um, they craft it as a specific policy response to a, a specific threat of uh, French intervention in Latin America. So it's not deliberately meant to be a timeless uh, American foreign policy, but it becomes that as it's remembered later in the 19th century. So that's the key thing that most people wouldn't know about the Monroe Doctrine is uh, it doesn't become the Monroe Doctrine until it's remembered as such uh, down the road. So, you know, in the minds of the Monroe cabinet, when they're thinking about the Monroe Doctrine or what becomes known as the Monroe Doctrine, would be questions about whether the Union would hold together, um, you know, the identification of its fault lines, its political, ideological, um, economic fault lines. So it's a, it's a paradox uh, America at this period. It's both increasingly powerful, but it's also persistently vulnerable. And the Monroe Doctrine really was all about how to insulate the United States, to secure it against its external threats so that its internal divisions um, could be um, bridged and those differences could be um, avoided. The Civil War is when the Monroe Doctrine becomes a prominent feature. You know, after Monroe delivers this message, you know, there's some discussion about it in the American press. There's uh, reactions across the Atlantic in Britain and in Europe. And, of course, there's reactions as well in Latin America. But it's it's not seen as um, this uh, this great moment in international affairs or American diplomatic history. It's pretty much forgotten uh, by the next year and doesn't reemerge until, uh, for all intents and purposes, until about 20 years later. What sort of played a key role in, in sort of cementing it and its legacy? That's a great question. I, mean, I think a couple of things. First is the text itself, the, the message itself. It's uh, very ambiguous. It states what European powers cannot do in the Western Hemisphere, but it doesn't say anything about what the United States uh, can or should or ought to do. So it's really uh, flexible, it's elastic, it's open to interpretation or reinterpretation. So it's very useful uh, down the road. I think another reason why it becomes such a prominent uh, symbol in American politics is because Monroe himself um, he was a, an uncontroversial president, at least as remembered later in the 19th century. Um, and one of the interesting things about the period in which he was president was that there weren't two formal oppositional political parties. Now, we know that there were factions and the beginnings of uh, partisanship, the, what was called the second party system of Whigs and, and Democrats, but that hadn't quite happened formally yet. So he was kind of remembered as a as a pre-partisan uh, president and could be uh, fondly remembered by those across the political spectrum. So I think that made his uh, doctrine of foreign policy particularly useful. 
it's kind of like um, what I tell my students. The Monroe Doctrine in the 19th century is like is it's like the uh, American flag lapel pins that uh, politicians wear today. Everybody does that. It's almost um, it's ubiquitous. It's part of being an American politician. And that's kind of what the Monroe Doctrine was like. Everybody had to pay homage to it. Everyone had to say they subscribed to its tenets, even if its tenets were very um, unclear and open to debate and contestation. Remember how we heard Secretary of State John Kerry say at the beginning of the episode that the Monroe Doctrine is dead? Well, that's because it came to be seen as a symbol of American imperialism over Central and South America. The Monroe Doctrine became synonymous with U.S. imperialism in the eyes of Latin Americans in the late 19th century and indeed in the early 20th century when it was used as justification for U.S. intervention in Latin American or Caribbean countries. And the argument, uh, most famously, it was presented by Theodore Roosevelt in 1904. The, the argument was that a disorder in Latin America invited European aggression. Therefore, the United States, because it was committed to preventing European powers from intervening in the Western Hemisphere, the United States needed to take matters into its own hand and intervene to restore order. This was used by Roosevelt um, first in uh, Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic. It was used by subsequent administrations, including Woodrow Wilson, who intervened in Haiti, the Dominican Republic, Nicaragua, uh, Cuba, and elsewhere. So it became seen, and with, with reason, it becomes very important in Latin American memory and understandings of American foreign policy. It's written into textbooks, um, uh, not as a symbol of U.S. nationalism, as we would read in the United States today, but as a symbol of imperialism. So I think that's what Kerry was dealing with when he gave his speech. What do you think it tells us about what Monroe wanted for America and sort of the vision that he had for the country? That's a tough question. It's a tough question because I wouldn't say that the message was distinctively Monroe. Um, in fact, a lot of it was written by his Secretary of State, and it was collectively debated and um, rewritten by the cabinet as a whole. So I wouldn't say it was, you know, the way we think about presidential doctrines today is something that a president boldly announces. It um, wasn't quite like that with the Monroe Doctrine. That's one of the misunderstandings of, of it. And it's funny enough, it's funny because I think our understanding of the Monroe Doctrine today is so conditioned by, you know, the successor doctrines, by the Nixon Doctrine, you know, the Bush Doctrine, whatever it might be. And we, we see those, we understand those as um, representative of of distinctive presidential visions of America's role in the world. And then we project that back and think that's what the Monroe Doctrine was about. So the Monroe Doctrine starts out basically just as a statement. Then a couple decades later, it gets called a doctrine. Then eventually, around the early 20th century, it gets twisted to justify U.S. intervention. And then it falls out of favor. But what stays popular is this idea that U.S. presidents should have a foreign policy doctrine. And what also lives on is the broader concept that 
you can use foreign policy to push and force a national agenda. Today and in the 20th century, rather than invoking an old doctrine from the 19th century, presidents create their, no, their own doctrine under their own names. But uh, I think what they're doing is very similar to historically what happened in the 19th century, and that is trying to rally domestic support on behalf of a, of a specific agenda by wrapping it up in popular nationalist symbols and rhetoric. Um, that's what the Monroe Doctrine of 1823, and indeed of the 19th century as a whole, is all about. It's all about how uh, the foreign affairs um, affect and shape the domestic politics, and vice versa. And that's a really important thing to think about. That's something that's still with us today. I think American domestic politics profoundly shapes uh, its foreign policy, and vice versa. International affairs, uh, globalization, security threats profoundly shape our domestic politics. And the Monroe Doctrine doesn't give us like a lesson that we can apply to today, but it does tell us that those things are interconnected in ways that we don't often realize. Monroe dies in New York when he's 73 years old. And in another just unbelievable turn, he dies on July 4th, just like John Adams and Thomas Jefferson before him. He dies with that revolutionary musket shell still in his shoulder. And with that, we say goodnight and farewell in this presidential podcast to our era of founding fathers. Special thanks this episode to Greg Schneider at the Washington Post, to Daniel Preston and Scott Harris at the Monroe Museum, to Jay Sexton at Oxford University, and to Julie Miller at the Library of Congress. Which brings me to a piece of sad news, which is that this was our last episode featuring Julie Miller, because unfortunately her expertise fades as the era of revolutionary American presidents comes to a close. So I want to just give one more very special thanks to her for all of her help on these first five episodes. Next week, we'll move on to John Quincy Adams. Music for the podcast is by Dave Wessner, and as always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at presidential underscore WP. Hi there, Lillian again. If you're enjoying Presidential, check out another podcast I made right afterward called Constitutional. It's a deep dive into the story of our country's founding document. From abolition and civil rights to suffragists and the fight for the 19th Amendment. Women should have the vote because it's unjust, shameful, and cowardly for men to deprive women of that which they demand for themselves. 
It explores the revolutionary figures who advanced our understanding of free speech, religious freedom, the right to bear arms, immigration, Native American rights. For the first time in the 103-year history of the United States, a federal judge had declared that an Indian, from that point forward, would have to be regarded as a person. And it takes you back in time to the original battle of ideas at the Constitutional Convention. There was nothing dry or dusty about it. This is the most radical body of democratic deliberation ever assembled. These struggles, from 1787 all the way up to today, constitute the story of America. You can listen to The Constitutional Podcast at WashingtonPost.com slash constitutional. Or you can find it on whatever your favorite podcast platform is.